Welcome everyone to episode three of Aligning the Quan podcast. I am your host, Kimani Jefferson, coming to you from my home in Seymour, Wisconsin. Let's get right into it. The National Registry of Exonerations is a project run by the Newkirk Center for Science and Society at the University of California at Irvine. The University of Michigan Law School and Michigan State University College of Law. They generated a report that official misconduct contributed to false convictions in 54% of exonerations, usually with more than one type of misconduct. The study, which is based on 2,400 exonerations recorded, from 1989 until early 2019 found that prosecutors and police officers, or rather police officers and prosecutors, committed misconduct at comparable rates. Nearly all of the official misconduct identified falls into five general categories. Witness tampering, misconduct in interrogations, fabricating evidence, concealing exculpatory evidence, and misconduct at trial. It is very rare um, for police to be prosecuted for misconduct. It is even more rare for prosecutors to do the same. I, um, there is such a term in our country called obstruction of justice. I don't know what the specific elements of that crime are in each state, but I'm sure it wouldn't be difficult to draw a link between that and some of these things that police officers and prosecutors do. In any event, Jonathan Tubby. Jonathan Tubby was a young man uh, from the Oneida tribe of Native Americans here in Wisconsin. Two years ago, um, he was pulled over for a traffic violation. He did have a warrant. And they brought him into the station in Green Bay and in the Sally Port. He was shot five times uh, and died in police custody. The podcast is kind of long. It's two hours. But the family invited us into their home and shared the story. And I wanted to give them as much time as they needed to get through it we did have to take breaks throughout and of course those were cut because at times family members teared up because when they do things like this podcasts are being interviewed by reporters um, it's like opening a wound again but I didn't want to drive the conversation anywhere Um, I just appreciate the fact that they allowed me to come in and um and they shared their grief with me. And hopefully you guys will take a listen and have some questions about what type of justice system do we want in this country? What are we going to, or are we going to continue allowing police to act as executioners? Are we going to continue to not force the justice system um, to make certain departments um, 
come to terms with mixed misconduct, which has happened in their department. What kind of justice system do we want? This country is supposed to be about the land of the free for all. It has not been free for black people, and we are tired. Don't talk to us about looting. Y'all are the looters. America has looted black people. America looted the Native Americans when they first came here. So looting is what you do. We learned it from you. We learned violence from you. So if you want us to do better, then damn it, you do better. Confrontation ain't nothing new to me. You could bring a bullet, bring a sword, bring a morgue, but you can't bring the truth to me. All right, welcome everyone to episode three of Aligning the Quan podcast. I am Kimani Jefferson, your host, and I'm coming to you from the Oneida Reservation uh, in Wisconsin. And I'm sitting here with the family of Jonathan Tubby. Jonathan Tubby was a young Oneida man who was shot by the police in the Sally Port of the Green Bay Police Department uh, two years ago. Um, if we could have the fam- we have, we're here with three family members. If we could have you introduce yourselves. I am Sue Dockstader. I am Jonathan's aunt. Um, my younger brother is his father. I am Sarah Wonderlich. I am another one of Jonathan's aunt. My older sister, Nina, is his mother. My name is Danielle Carl, and I am Jonathan's cousin on his dad's side. Well, thank you guys very much for having me here. Uh, I know this isn't obviously the first time you've had to tell this story, and I know it doesn't necessarily get easier um, each time you tell it. So I just really appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak with you here. I guess let's start at the beginning. Can you talk us through what happened uh, to Jonathan? Um, On the night of October 18th, 19th, 19th, sorry, um, 2018, uh, Jonathan was in a car in downtown Green Bay and was pulled over by the Green Bay Police Department. In the car, he was also with his aunt. Jonathan didn't stop right away. Um, apparently, he kind of rolled through a stop sign, and that's why he was pulled over. So he kind of slowly rolled into this parking lot and then eventually stopped. The police then got, um, I don't know, did they suspect? They said they found um, marijuana or they... Smelled it or something. They they found it after they they, uh, realized they had warrants. Okay. And I guess it was on the passenger seat after they were taken out of the car. Okay. So um, Jonathan did not, for whatever reason, give his right name, but they ended up finding out who he was and realized that he had a warrant for not um, showing up, checking himself into jail for an OWI that he had. So he was supposed to serve time and then he didn't show up. And then his aunt um, also had a warrant. So one thing led to another and they were um, 
it's okay. The fam like in the, if you hear in the background, we're in the family home. The family dog is uh, eating. Is eating. <laughs> um, so, Sounds like a pig. But that's okay. <laughs> family pig is in the background. Right. Um. So Jonathan, um, in the car in, that pulled Jonathan over were two officers. One was a trainee by the name of Officer Colton Warnicky. And the other officer was Officer Eric O'Brien. Officer O'Brien was the trainer that day. So they um, proceeded to do what they needed to do. And um, Colton Warnicky actually searched Jonathan. And from our, our memory, because there is a video, we do have a video. Okay of what happened that night to a certain point. Okay. So um, it appears that they put Jonathan in the car and then for whatever reason, they took him out and then they put him back in again. So through our depositions, we asked Officer Warnicky if he was confident with his search of Jonathan. And he explained a pretty detailed search that he learned in through his police training and that he performed on Jonathan. And at that point, they found nothing on Jonathan. So Jonathan was placed in the car. This all occurred about 7.30 that evening and one of the things that I think still stands with me is the fact that they didn't get to the Sally Port until 8.30 that evening. And just so you guys are aware, Green Bay is not that big. It's not like you're, he was, they were driving him from Fort Worth to Dallas. Um, I mean, Green Bay is just uh, from end to end driving on a highway uh, is less than 10 minutes. Okay. So, um, in the video, it did show Jonathan was able to maneuver his hands from behind him to the front of him. And can you, I'm sorry, can you say that again? Jonathan was able to get his hands from his, the back of him to the front of him while handcuffed, mm -hmm. while handcuffed. Yeah. Okay. That happened before the police left to bring him to the Sally Port. Okay. So he was in the back of the car by himself, I would assume, um, do, during that time doing this. And, you know, at one point you could see on Jonathan's face that he must have hurt himself because he had a very, like, you know, like it. A pained look, look, look on his face. face. And he was also in the video holding himself like this at times. Like so he had hurt, maybe hurt his wrist or something. Or even his shoulder, the way he was yeah. holding his arm. Okay. So eventually they left and Jonathan was kind of bent over in the seat as they were riding to the, to the jail. And it took quite a long time to get there. And then we could see them pulling into the Sally port. So, like I said, they arrived about 8.30, 8.32, something around there. And um, 
Officer O'Brien got out of the car and proceeded to the back of the vehicle and opened the trunk, which is where the police officers put, they're able to put their weapons in there. So he started putting his weapons in the trunk and um, Officer Warnicky came around and went to the passenger side where Jonathan was and opened up the door. And you can kind of see the light shining in. And at that point, um, he had put his hand on Jonathan's knee. And from what he is saying that he said, come on, John, get out of the car. And Jonathan said, I'll do it. Now that statement, I'll do it, took a whole nother turn in this whole reporting of what happened that evening. We look at it because we know Jonathan that I'll do it meant I'll do it myself. I'll get out. Don't yeah. touch me. Jonathan didn't like to be touched. Mm-hmm. And even when Warnicky had um, mentioned that Jonathan said those things in deposition, he said exactly how he said it. I'll do it. You know, it wasn't, he wasn't belligerent. He wasn't being right. disrespectful. And they said even the whole ride, there was no issues. From the moment they put him in the car to the Sally Port, there was no issues with him. And you saw that in the video. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that came out in the, um, the, the depositions also was the fact that there's a camera in the front seat of the police car. Mm -hmm. And that camera is supposed to observe the people in the back. Okay. We were told that the camera was pointed to the ceiling. And no one ever looked at what was going on in the back seat of the car. Is there is there audio? Um, in the back seat, yes. Okay. So, had they been on that camera, had that camera been positioned where it was supposed to be, keeping an eye on Jonathan in the back seat of the car, they would have saw that he got his hands in front of him that night mm-hmm. on the way to the jail. Right. But instead, they just left it up, pointed up towards the ceiling. I think that a key point that I want to make about that particular thing is that when news came out that someone had been shot in the Sally Port and they started to release details in the media, the media, someone in the media was leaked that the officers had called in that he was acting suspicious on the way to the Sally Port. That is not true. Mm-hmm. And we don't know where that came from from but the media reported that as like fact okay and that is not what happened you can see that in the footage and also through the deposition well, through the deposition they, what they said mm-hmm. they said he was not a problem both officers stated he was not a problem so at that point when he said i'll do it um officer warnicky noticed that jonathan had his hands balled up in front of him underneath his shirt so he backed away shut the door went back to where Officer O'Brien was standing, which was still behind the trunk of the car, the trunk still open, and said... Something not right. or Not right or something suspicious. I don't remember what term he used. Um, I think his hands are in front of him. Right. So Officer O'Brien um, took out his flashlight as he's standing behind the car, and you see the flashlight in the video, and 
shined it to the back window. Mm -hmm. And you can see the flashlight going back and forth. And then said, he has a gun. Oh, but at the same time, and when he did that, in the video, it shows Jonathan with his chest down by his legs. Like he's leaned forward, just sitting there like that. And O'Brien's flashlight is on his back. Mm -hmm. Okay, so where'd they see a gun? When we watched that video, I did not see anything that looked like he had a gun. The clip that the media showed where he had like his, his finger through his shirt like this, mm -hmm. that didn't even happen at that time. That happened toward the end of the footage. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they didn't even see this image at that time. So, and that was one thing as we were watching the video, it was like, he, there's no way, no possible way he could have saw anything other than John's back, mm -hmm. his back and the back of his head. He was curled up in what I look at sometimes like a fetal position, you know, with his chest way down and almost like he was cold and you kind of bunch up a little bit. So that set the tone, that statement, he has a gun, set the tone for what happened the rest of the, that 10 minutes or so before Jonathan was killed. So. Can, can you go back and talk about, are we able to talk about the booking procedure and how that was in, or no, the jailer? I think. First thing about that one. I think so. Yeah. And just so everyone aware is aware, there is a civil proceeding going on right now. So there are certain aspects of the story that at this time, uh, you know, would probably be best to be kept under under wraps. So there are some things, some details that you can't quite get into at this at this moment. Correct. We're still under uh, confidentiality for. Uh, I think for at least another couple of weeks on some of our last depositions. So okay. um, we we did question the procedures and policies in regards to if you have someone who's refusing to get out of the back of the car, you know, what is the procedure for that? What is supposed to happen? And it's my understanding through depositions that that is a responsibility of the jailers to come out and to find a way to get that subject out of the car. Right. That did not happen. Um, Officer Warnicky did say that he went to that booking area and he didn't know if anybody was in there or not, but somehow they said they called for help well help ended up being numerous and i mean numerous police officers from green bay from the swat team from brown county numerous canine handlers and their dogs and it just became overwhelmed with police officers while jonathan was sitting in the back of the car okay yeah, so one, one important detail I want to add is that when O'Brien said he has a gun, then all, then it went through the entire whoever was in that Sally Port was then told he has a gun. Mm -hmm. So it right. spread through the whole Sally Port. 
and okay. there were I don't know if you guys know how many officers you tell them how many officers were in there twelve maybe no there was more, than, more that. than that there was a, I think it was in the twenties and the the one thing during that whole time you know it, the this fake news I guess you could say this this false false narrative, narrative yeah. spread like wildfire but not once did any officer go up to Warnicky and say well you searched him did you find anything right that was never that never took place either right and another thing that never took place was like if the training officer felt uncomfortable about trying to get Jonathan out of the car why wouldn't you know because I I work with I used to work with well I still do work with youth and I've always been an advocate of if a child is having a meltdown and they're they're not wanting to cooperate give them cool down time and then come back and approach them again in a different way. Why wasn't that done? Why didn't they just give him five minutes, come back, open the door and say, are you ready? Right. If, if they were trained in de-escalation. Right. Um, but that's not what the police uh, primarily in this country are trained to do. Well, they claim they, they have that training. We found that through depositions. They claim they have that kind of training. They claim that there were other alternatives that they could have used. Um, they have what they call a crisis intervention team. And, um, but for whatever reason, just like the SWAT team, you have to deploy them. And that term, deploy, well, you know, most of the officers that are on the SWAT team are trained in that negotiation. They are the crisis intervention team, team right. members. But never, SWAT was not deployed in the case of Jonathan. However, they were all there. Right. You know, they had the commander on the phone. They were talking. You know, we had two officers that... Um, came up with a less lethal plan to get Jonathan on the car. And as its ranking officers started coming in and taking over, and then the next one came in and took over, and the next one, these lethal plans got dismissed. And to a point where the final lieutenant that came in, I believe he's a lieutenant, Lieutenant Zeigel from Brown County assumed jurisdiction of the Sally Port at that point okay. and said, this is Brown County, this is our jurisdiction. And one of the officers actually came to Lieutenant and said, you know, we talked about a less lethal plan and, you know, our, I think pretty much asked him if they were going to use that. And he said no. And um, the other officer asked, well, um, what are you going to do? And he said, we're going to break out the window and we're going to um, shoot in OC spray. And the officer said, and then what? And he said, and then we'll see what happens. Okay. The less, lethal, less lethal. The less lethal route by two officers. One was the canine officer that actually, um, in, you'll hear that further on in the story, that engaged with Jonathan. Mm -hmm. 
And the other one was, uh, I think he was Brown County too, Brown County officer, sergeant, um, was to take their shield and to come around the Bearcat, um, which I'll get to, and then go around the front of the Bearcat because Jonathan was on this side, open up the door, let the canine go in and get Jonathan out of the car. That was the left lethal plan, and that was talked about by two officers. So Lieutenant Zeigel just totally dismissed that, and the one officer that questioned him and asked him, and then what? felt that Lieutenant Zeigel was a little upset with him for questioning him. So um, what happened from there is um, all this time Jonathan is sitting in the back of the vehicle. The windows were fogging up. They asked Jonathan, um, Jonathan, show us your hands. Jonathan, show us your hands. Come on, John, we don't want to hurt you. Jonathan, show us your hands. They asked him to wipe the windows, and he did. Jonathan, in the beginning, was, I don't know if he was mad or confused about what was going on, I'm not even sure, but he did tell the officers to F off a few times, which he didn't know why he was sitting in the back of the car, but, you know. That long. That long. And I think the other thing is, like, at that time when they started to not, you know, they gear up and do whatever and it spread through that he had a gun. You could see Jonathan kept trying to look out the window to see what was going on and saw there was a bunch of commotion going on. Yeah, and a, and a buildup of energy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And there were times where he shifted and he was trying to look and then he would turn back and just sit there waiting for them to come and get him out of the car. And I think when she was talking about, you could hear him say, that, you know, F you or whatever. I think he knew in that moment that something was happening that wasn't going to end well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So and not only, sorry to cut you off, the other thing I wanted to talk about too was that with the um, windows getting clogged up, it appeared to me when I watched the video that it was hot in there. Mm-hmm. He was under distress. You could see his skin glistening, his hair was glistening because of the sweat. Well, yeah, from, from, from stress... You know, um, uncertainty, all of these things, you know, circuits. Yeah, you obviously. But he wasn't belligerently screaming in the back seat. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the stuff, it sounded like it was under under his breath. Yeah. And they, they painted this picture of him being aggressive in the back seat of the car. I didn't see any of that. I don't think any of us saw any of that. We saw him changing spots in the car, looking to see what was going on out, you know, and facing. One officer actually in his deposition said he heard animal noises coming from the car, what he thought sounded like animal noises. So I wanted to see what was coming, you know, what, was Jonathan yelling? Was he, you know, what was he doing? Jonathan was crying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He would cry and he was sobbing. And then he kind of, and you could just see it in his eyes that he was scared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then he would calm down a little bit, you know, stop crying. And then he'd be looking around again and he'd move position again. And then he just 
break down and cry again. I don't know how many times I counted at least four times that he was sobbing in the back of that car. Yeah. And, and you know, a fearful sob, like he knew something bad was coming, you know, and, and confusion on top of it. And it's just when they say animal noises. Right. To, to describe it that way. Yeah. In that way. Yeah. And, and there's other officers who have heard him, but they, you know, they heard him speak. They heard him say stuff, but this one wants to say animal noises. And, and he's so fearful, you know. Yeah. So to see a young man sob in that way is, is heartbreaking. Yeah. And that's the, the way they're going to describe him. That's, that's frustrating and disheartening to hear that. It, it feels like dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. It is dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole the whole situation is dehumanizing. Um, that's one of the things we're good at. Um, he, so um, at approximately nine o three, the Bearcat pulled in. Okay. And it pulled up alongside the vehicle, and you could see the officers coming out of the turret. You know, yelling commands at Jonathan, show me your hands, show me your hands. Um, they were talking. You can hear a little bit of that. And then there's different views, different video views that we have of what was going on outside the Sally Port door. Um, some of the officers that were geared up in their SWAT um, outfits. Uh, there was a civilian that was there. In one of the videos, um, he is a retired police officer who was on a ride along that day. Okay. And in one of the videos, you will you can see him clearly right outside the Sally Port door with his phone up taking pictures of what was going on inside. There was another civilian. Um, one of the officer's dads was along for a ride along that day. Okay. So, um, the air from the videos I've saw outside the Sally Port, people were talking, people were laughing, people were smiling. I, I find it really hard to even believe that this was the situation that they said it was because of the demeanor of the officers that were outside the Sally Port that night. And we're talking minutes from the time the the Bearcat pulled in at 9.03, Jonathan was dead by 9.11. And the Sally Port door was still open through the whole incident. Both Sally Port doors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we questioned that. Um, I think a lot of people said that's not right. That door should automatically close behind someone. It shouldn't stay open. You know, there's a control booth that... Especially if you have a situation where you have a, a, a suspect, you know, individual that, you know, supposedly is, you know, not wanting to... to you don't know what they're going to do. You know you I mean? You close, like, close the door, <laughs> you know. But none of that ever happened. So, um, I don't know what... At what point they just said, okay, let's do this, mm-hmm. you know, because that's pretty much what it looked like. You know, yeah. they got tired of, you know, 
10, 15 minutes of saying, Jonathan, you know, show us your hands, show us your hands or whatever it was. And, you know, when we asked the officers, was this an emergent situation to get Jonathan out of the car? You know, some of them didn't even know how long Jonathan was at the Sally Port. I think one officer said, well, you know, he was there for two hours. He wasn't there for two hours. Mm -hmm. He was there for a half an hour. You know, before you guys even saw him, Mm -hmm. you know, and they felt it was emergent because, you know, it was hot and, you know, but the only emergency that I can see in my mind, my opinion, is coming from the officers that were in the Sally Port that day because they truly believe that he had a gun. Yeah. They believe that from one person in that Sally Port. And one person that said they saw a gun, but never did, because I don't know. Well, that was gonna. Well, that was gonna be my question. You know, when it's all said and done, where's the gun? There is no gun. There was never a gun. There, there's footage. And we might be jumping ahead a little bit, but there's footage of someone outside shooting from outside the Sally Port. Mind you, the door's wide open. Mm-hmm. Where Jonathan fell back with his hands over his head. And you can see he did not have a gun. There's footage that shows that. But yet, then he was shot, like, what, five seconds after that or something? Yeah. And all the cops, a lot of them were standing there watching him and seeing him fall. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They had to have seen he was unarmed. Eventually, they decided to shoot the window out, so they did shoot the window out. And then um, they came back around again and had to swipe, break the glass because it didn't break out. But the first shot is when Jonathan um, actually sat back. And at that point, I think he said, um, what are you guys doing to me? Yeah. You know, somebody help me. And he turned around to, like, look out the window to see. And then... So just, uh, just, just quick. I want everyone to put themselves in that situation. You don't have a gun, (laughs) okay? So forget that the gun that the guy said that increased the level of alertness to everyone around at this police station. There was no gun. You have no gun. You're sitting in the back of a police car. Then all of a sudden you start feeling the world close in on you. Um, and you have no control over anything at this point, like none. Um, you know, just just imagine putting yourself there and still, you know, like, of course, there's like, what are you guys doing? You know, I, I can I can totally see that as a reaction. But I'm sorry, go ahead. So when they broke the glass in the window, um and I may be getting the video mixed up, but I I remember him curling up in the corner. And I I remember somebody saying, Jonathan, show us your hands. And he said, okay, I can't, I'm scared. Somebody help me. And the next step of that, I mean, I haven't watched the video in a while, but and. Correct me if I'm missing stuff in here, but the next step of that is Jonathan looking out the 
the back window to see what was going on. Is that how it? And he was shot in the head with that. With the OC spray. The OC spray. Right in the face. Right in the face. And it wasn't a little bitty handheld OC. This was a crowd control canister of OC spray. Okay. So it was a larger canister. So as soon as he was hit with that OC spray, he immediately jumped out of the car. And when he jumped out of the car, that's when the video ended. Um, you can hear the gunshots. You can hear the audio after. You can't see what's happening, but we can hear. So when he jumped out the back, you know, if you think about being in the back of a cop car and jumping out part of the back window, you need your hands, right? You yeah. need your hands to get out. And still they were saying they didn't see his hands. So the other, after he jumped, sorry to interrupt. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> so that piece, the video ends, but we still have the audio we can yeah. hear. But there's another video from a squad. So you can see him. He stands up on the hood and he has his hands up. And um, not in the air, but up by his shirt. And um, that's when they shoot him with the beanbag gun. The, the beanbag bullet. There was no directions given. There was no, mm -hmm. Jonathan, stay there. There was no, Jonathan, put your hands up. They immediately shot him with the beanbag gun. And that knocked him over and he fell off the, the trunk of the squad. Okay, now I understand he had just been shot in the face, okay, uh, with chemical, mm -hmm. right, just a little while ago. So, again, try to picture that. <laughs> He doesn't know what's going on. Yeah, your senses are so skewed by yeah, that. He doesn't know what's going on. You know, your eyesight, your smell, your taste, everything. Right. You know. So, yeah, he, he doesn't know what's going on. And um, then he gets hit with a beanbag bullet and falls. And we, we believe from one of the depositions that he couldn't see because they said he ran right into a transport vehicle. Well, he had just been shot in the face. Yeah. And it I mean, kind of bounced him off. He kind of bounced off, and that's how that officer explained it. And then he started towards the door, the Sally Port door, where all the officers were. But at that split second, that officer that said that he bounced off that transport vehicle was the canine officer. And he had released his dog. And that dog engaged with Jonathan. Okay. He had dog bites in, in his back end. And Eric O'Brien is the one that shot Jonathan. And the trainee. No, no. the trainer. Oh, the trainer. Okay, yeah. Warnicky was the, the trainee. Mm -hmm. Okay. He was outside of the Sally Port door. And there was another beanbag shot fired off and at that split second he came around that sally port door and shot eight times because he thought jonathan was shooting at the police officers not the first being big shot but the second he thought that it was jonathan so okay so this entire situation um and then obviously so Here's a question I have about the video. You said the video stops at the moment he gets out of the car. 
what was the perspective of the video up to that up to that point like was <clears throat> was it from inside the sally port was it from in it was from inside the squad the squad facing jonathan okay the squad car okay there are no the sally port allegedly, has no allegedly there is no video, video recording capability in the sally port but okay. we've heard accounts that that's not true okay people have when this all happened I was reading Facebook comments and people were saying I was convicted from video from the Sally Port in my case, so I know that there is. And we never followed up with those people, but allegedly there was none. And the officers, none of them had body cams and still don't. Yeah. So, um, you know, in, in the first reports that came out, it was like, you know, if O'Brien hadn't shot, we would have. Well, when you see some of the videos, not all the officers had, had their guns drawn. Yeah. You know, some of them were just standing there. Some jumped and took cover. And, you know, I, I just think it happened so fast. I, I don't even know what they were thinking, but, you know, SWAT was was some of the SWAT members were leaning against the car with their rifles, but the only one that shot was O'Brien. Yeah. So, and... Um, I just want to go back to a couple of things. Um, one, I want to go back and kind of point out, because I'm a, a trained sexual assault domestic violence advocate, mm -hmm. so we get a lot of training and trauma-informed like how to how to work with people who have been traumatized and i just want to say that this incident for jonathan was traumatizing him he was going through trauma jonathan had been through other types of trauma we all have mm. you know it's a, it's it's something so everybody has a trauma response and it's that fight flight or freeze because i see a lot of people saying well why didn't he comply why didn't he show his hands why didn't he do this if he only would have followed the rules and it's like you don't understand that your brain does not work the same when you are in trauma mm -hmm. right. or if you've been traumatized and you're in another situation it, that is triggering past trauma and creating new trauma that that doesn't happen let me let me let me i wouldn't say that they don't understand i think we as humans and many of us who don't have empathy we know that there are different reactions to trauma that can come from the same human because we all have experienced trauma. What many people can't do is apply that to other human beings. Um, and I think that is the issue. Um, we do not take traumas seriously um, enough for that. Um, and I will even say that from a policing standpoint, there are certain policemen who should not be patrolling anywhere because of something that they may have gone, have gone through the day before. Um, but because we don't really acknowledge uh, that type of mental health or trauma, uh, what can wind up happening is all you need in a situation like that is for two people to have a bad day. 
and somebody ends up dead. You know, I, I'm at this point, I'm I'm beyond the the belief or the things that like you you people not understanding. No, you do. Because you have experienced them themselves. You know, uh, you've had situations where the situation has overwhelmed you and you wound up doing something that you would not have done if you were driving your own car. Like of your, I'm talking about the, of your mind. You know, but what we have difficulty doing is giving that credit, that benefit of the doubt to other human beings. Um, it's it, it, to me. It's it's you saying that O'Brien was the one that did the shooting. I mean that means something, you know, um, because it seemed to me, by what you have said, is that everyone else in that Sally Port was more interested in less lethal measures. I would say quite a few of them, yes. You know, I mean, otherwise, he wouldn't have been the only one to shoot. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone else kept their composure. Um, this O'Brien did not. And it, it goes to show because when he came in and shot, he shot eight times. Yeah. Five hitting Jonathan. So where'd the other three go? You know. And we heard one hit a wall. We heard one hit a, a cop door. Well, that's that's another reason why the other police officers hesitated. Mm -hmm. Because in a situation, okay, I'm going to bring up the 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 uh, Jacob Blake like the situation. He had kids in the car. Yeah. You had had to shoot when you shoot somebody in close range. I mean, you don't know where the bullet's going to go. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, he he could have missed, or the bullet could have ricocheted off a bone and hit one of the kids in the car. Like you're actually taught that when you're, you know, when you're going through, it's like, what are the surroundings like? You have all these police officers in an enclosed area, you know, you, you, it's probably best, you know, not to come out blazing, mm -hmm. you know, because if you don't hit anybody else, you were just lucky that day, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, and, and that's what happened, um, for the other officers that were in there. They were just lucky. Um, and they we're following close quarter procedures when it comes to uh, release the release of weapons, okay, of weapons fire. So, wow. So this happened, and then, well, I mean, and then what? Well, I mean, that pretty much sums up what happened in the situation. Um, you know, the other information that we found out came from the depositions, okay. which really turned the, the story to a whole nother level. Okay, so um, we started depositions. Um, and is this for the civil? This is for the civil okay. action. And... We started those probably about a year ago, December. And, and I'm sorry, just to go back because I I think people are going to be in, you know interested in this part of it. What because before jumping to the civil proceeding, what was the determination regarding the incident from the police department? Oh yeah, we should back up. 
Um, we, I think we should back up and let the audience know that the two police officers were put on administrative leave. With so pay. they were still with pay. Mm -hmm. And then were later put back on the force, which shocked people, mm -hmm. but didn't allow them to be out policing. They had, they allegedly said that, well, they're back, but they're working in the office. So administrative sure. duties. Yeah. Yes. And that was before the DA even released his decision. Okay. And I actually want to take a step back too. I think one thing that we, we need people to understand, um, you know, in the means that Jonathan was shot, mm -hmm. you know, we kind of skipped that piece and, and how he was shot was face down, arms out, canine engaged and hit five times. One in the back of the head, one in the back of the neck and three in the upper left back. So all in the back, all in the back. And all the bullets, according to the medical examiner, entered in a downward pattern. And it's also point, important to point out that the narrative in the media. So, was, so I'm sorry, just to, so what that means is he was on the ground. He was on the floor. He was not standing. Mm -hmm. That's what that means. Okay. But the media portrayed it and allegedly it was leaked that he was charging the officers. That's why the officer shot him. Okay. That is not true. So, um, do we also want to address the, the media, per, per, the way that they portrayed him as far as, and maybe it, this was also, I think, um, the district attorney portraying him as someone who was high, mm -hmm. someone who was suicidal, and somebody who was aggressive and non-compliant. And, and okay. um, they're still trying to hang on to that narrative, even though it's been proven wrong. You know, they're still trying to push that. You know, there's still people who believe. Well, the first two, the, the first two um, are irrelevant. Being high and suicidal doesn't mean it doesn't get the death penalty. And the third one is a lie. Well, same as people still believe he had a gun. You know. When no gun was ever found before, during, or after. Right. Okay, so the DA, they put out the narrative, which uh, actually began when they said he was a problem before they got to the, to the police station. Um, that was not true. Yeah. Jonathan was never, ever charged with any violent crime. He had an OWI. Um, I think he had another alcohol offense. He was never charged for disorderly conduct, for resisting arrest, for anything violent. Right. Um, that just wasn't Jonathan. Right. I, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, that is a, that is a, a, a method, right. That they use to, to put out there is character assassination, um, to defend their murders, right. Murderous ways. So I think it's, you know, before we continue, I think it's really important for 
you know, and we've talked about this as a family that we've been releasing stuff here and there in some of our statements. And, you know, there's still those people out there that just don't want to hear what we have to say. And we know because we were sitting at that table with those police officers that were involved in this. Yeah. And they told us, this is all on record and all documented, I mean, everything. And, you know, there's 300 pages of one officer's deposition and we have probably interviewed maybe 15 people already. There is just so much that is coming out that it's hard for us to to get everything out there. But, you know, like, we don't know. Is it, do they even really want to hear it? For some, for some, that answer is no. Yeah, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. You know, for some, the answer is just no. Because they, I think that means they have to let go of their ideal... Putting the police officers up on a pedestal, they're here to protect and serve mentality, and they don't want to let go of that. Right. They'll just say, they'll, they'll just say it's some bad apples. But the thing is, they don't, they, they say that part of that saying, but not the rest of it, which is a couple of bad apples ruins the entire bunch, (laughs) you know? So yeah, they, it's the bad apples. So So it's just, I mean, it's so important for the people that really want to know what happened to Jonathan to hear what we're saying, Mm -hmm. you know, that after a certain number of of depositions, we all sat back and, and thought this should have never happened this way. Right. You know, their policies weren't followed. There was no emergency situation to get Jonathan out of the car? Why didn't they use the crisis intervention team? Why didn't they call one of us? They did not see a A gun. gun. Right. They did not see a gun. And that's, that's, that's that. You know, I, I'm, I, I, if you go out and it was an accident, but you killed someone. It was an accident, but it's called negligent homicide. That applies to you and me, uh, but it doesn't apply to a cop. You know, so what did the DA, like what was the, the DA came out and said, no, I'm not going to charge him. They feel that his actions were justified. So, and about when was that? Like the time? The time. January. When we went met with the DA, February first, I believe, was the date. Yeah, of um, 2019. So Mm -hmm. a few months after. Okay. Um, we were all called to the DA's office, and I think it's important to talk about that a little bit. Um on what we experienced with the district attorney. Um, Jonathan's parents were there, myself, Sarah, my husband, DOJ was there, the district attorney, the medical examiners, our our attorneys. 
um, they proceeded to tell us the story and show us selection of pictures, um, clearly not everything, um, after we started getting the videos from our attorney um, of what happened that night. Um, my husband actually was the one who spoke up and said, so you're not going to charge them with murder, but what about negligent? What about a lesser charge? And the DA wouldn't even hear, wouldn't even hear it. I don't remember what he said, but he said something. My brother, Jonathan's dad, was in special forces in the army. And he asked, what is your definition of excessive force or lethal force mm -hmm. or whatever term they use? And because he said, that's, that's not how I view that being in the position that I was in, in special forces. So there was a lot of quiet points in that meeting. I can imagine that they had, uh, they, they didn't have an answer because I know exactly what he's talking about. If we have a mark, like a person that we, ha that we have to go get, the mission is to go get them <laughs> and to bring them back. If it doesn't happen, because for whatever reason, we want something that that person knows, something that that person has, something that that person is going to do. We want to know what those things are, and we can only find out those things by getting them and talking to them. So if that person does not come back alive, you have failed at your mission. You could call that an arrest. And, and that's what he was talking about. You know, like when, when, when a cop's job, right, is to arrest people not to execute them. And it's just as simple as that. Like if you believe in our legal system, uh, then you, you must understand uh, that a policeman's job is not to be an executioner. We don't have Wyatt Earps, you know, running around here, you know, and, and we're, not, we're not supposed to. Um, the police have a very specific duty and how our system is supposed to work, or at least as it's advertised. Um, however, we see exceptions to that so often, and those exceptions, the victims of those exceptions look a certain way. Um, I said earlier, I'm like, I just, I, I fail to believe that it's a flaw in the system. I, I, I believe that it is a feature. Um, and, and we know that it's a feature and not a flaw because when it does happen, you can pretty much count on the fact that the DA is not going to charge. And our attorney prepared us for that. I mean, he did. And, you know, we didn't prepare our family for that. So when we came back here, our entire family was here waiting for us. And it, I mean, that press conference from the DA came out quickly. But one of the things that really upset us as a family was our attorney was standing at the end of my counter here 
typing up a statement for the media. And we're watching the TV, the press conference with the district attorney. And then he started listing all these drugs that were apparently in Jonathan's system. And then they showed a picture of the canine. And it was like, we all looked at each other and said, nobody told us there were canine there. And it was selective because we watched numerous local news stations that day. And I wish I would remember, but I think it was an accident that they showed that canine in that video because you see a cop at the end of the video run by and it's kind of cut off. So you kind of get maybe from his elbow ish up. Okay. And then one of the videos you see it, the same video, but it's not edited and he's running by and he's pulling a canine mm -hmm. and we're, Hey, wait, now they didn't tell us about no canine. What's going on? Here? Mm -hmm. So, and it was just that one news station and then we never saw it again. And that, that puts a crack in the story of he raged out of the back of the car and yeah. Okay. So we had no idea. So, and then at beginning, we only thought there was one canine, the one we saw and come to find out there was four in the building. You know, so. See, and I'm. This is a caveat, but I think it's an important one to talk about. I, I, I have friends who are out there who are of the libertarian bent, who are even beyond like the defund, like no police, no government, no nothing. And I'm like, well, that's where you. you I mean, you're gonna lose me, um, because from a federal level, and this is why it's important. It's, it's, I mean, local elections are the most important, but federal elections are important because what ought to happen in situations like that, like this, when this starts to come to light, is that the Civil Rights Division um, of the Department of Justice gets involved. Um, because if the district attorney knows the truth and selectively chooses not to pursue that, uh, they can be investigated uh, by the federal government. That's actually the federal government's job. That's the Department of Justice's job. No, the Department of Justice is not the personal law firm of the president. If you think that that's their job, I suggest you pick up a copy of the Constitution, read it a little bit, and then read some documents about why the Department of Justice was created to begin with. Okay, in caveat. But that's the purpose of the Department of Justice. And that's the reason why it's important who is there, <laughs> you know, and who isn't. Because it's, it's about what, you, what justice is pursued um, and what isn't. Um, the system just is not going to work um, if you have a, a, a district attorney who knows that they're putting a story forward that is simply not the truth about what happened. Um, and you need to, it's like, why are you afraid of the truth? Like, does this officer O'Brien have something on you? Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying the officer does. He probably doesn't. You know what I mean? Like what, what, what is the motivation behind that? Like, that's something that I'm not, that I'm not understanding. And even during the time we met with the DA, his body language i work with kids i've worked with kids from pre-kindergarten to high school and you start understanding body language and when kids are acting a certain way and and how they're folding up 
they're feeling, you know, insecure or they don't want to look at you. They might be like, you know, there's all these right, cues, so, right? So, right. So, and you can tell if somebody's fronting. Yeah. And that's, I wasn't sitting directly next to the DA, but my sister was who I was next to. And he's, my sister's a lot smaller than him. <laughs> and you could see him fold up. You could see him roll his shoulders in and he would fold down. And there was one part where he even had his arm and head on the table talking to us. And I'm, my whole thing is like, what? What the hell are you doing? Right. You know, you're telling us about the death of our boy. Right. And that it was justifiable, but this is how you're going to act. You know, and to me, it was just right off the bat. You know, it's like, okay, just his body language alone, this isn't race. And he knows it's, he not, knows right. it's not right. You know, and it, that was the first cue, you know, when we got there, everyone's like, good morning, how are you, you know, and all this, but him, you could see just him roll into himself. Yeah. It was very tense. It was, you could see that, and, you know, after they gave us an opportunity to meet with, I think, the medical examiner, he never came back again. Yeah. We never saw him again. Hmm. So, I mean, it was... It was shocking for us to come back home and then to have our families see the look on our face when we were shocked by what was being said on the TV because we didn't hear any of that. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's like, if you're going to tell a story, tell it to the family first. And that didn't happen. So, I mean, that just took us all in a bad direction um, in regards to wanting to listen to him to you know the whole situation I guess I can say you know I, I think one thing that I wanted to point out is we asked because we knew the media was at the courthouse when we were there mm -hmm. We asked to be escorted out to our cars when we were done. So this officer, I think he was Brown County. He was a Brown County Sheriff officer. And he walked us across the street to the ramp by our car, and he grabbed my arm as we were walking. And he said, I just want to tell you that we've had Jonathan here for other things. And he's always been respectful. We've never had a problem with him. Right. And I thought to myself, our, my, the, our attorney was behind me, and he goes, what did he just say to you? And I said, why did he feel the need to tell me that? You know, I appreciate the comment, but to me it was like telling me this wasn't right what happened. Right, don't stop. I mean, I, I mean, really, like he, he, he's telling you he doesn't, he, he doesn't believe it. Can you also tell the, um, the officers what they said in the depositions as far as the one officer saying we shouldn't be sitting at this table, those types of things? Well, once we get, so once, so, all right, that's done. You know, they're not going to charge. Um, had you already de determined before then that there were that you were going to pursue uh, means in the the civil system yes. uh, by that time? Yes. Okay. We we had an attorney. I think that next day after Jonathan was killed. Okay. 
Um, we made some calls um, and were fortunate to have some help from the res- the United Nation right. to lead us in the right direction. So we ended up finding um, Attorney Armstrong, who is from Virginia, and Attorney Tadanipa, who is from Minnesota. Yeah, and one thing I wanted to say is that, um, you know, I had heard great things about Chief Smith, you know, coming from L.A., and when he became here, you know, there was a lot of people um, that were saying that he was trying to clean up the racist stuff that was going on within the department for Green Bay, and so people had high hopes for him because he disciplined people and he, you know, didn't stand for some of that stuff. So for me, when Chief Smith got on, the, got in the media and said, you know, I'm going to do my own investigation. Um, this was after the district attorney's presentation. He said, I'm going to do my own investigation to see if there's any areas of improvement that we could work on as a department. Mm-hmm. If there was any procedures that um, didn't, weren't followed or violated. He's like, and I am... I'm going to take care of that type of feel. That's what I felt. And a lot, I think a lot of people held on to that too, knowing that he had this um, image in our community of not standing for some of that stuff. Right. And trying to hold his officers accountable. But then when he came out later and said, there is there was nothing. They did everything they were supposed to. It was justified. And I remember being like, really? There was no protocols that were broken. Right. There was all the policies were followed to a T. There's no areas of improvement to to not to have to kill somebody. To me, that was just a huge letdown because I'm like, you're telling us that your Green Bay Police Department has no areas of improvement. Right. But we all know, and in our complaint, there are many instances and stories in Green Bay of excessive force. That's well, used. well, in this, in this, just to keep it on this particular case. Um, the gun (laughs) okay like that it's just going back to that uh going back to you know frisking him and like i mean you know it's it's it starts from the moment of first contact um you know there are er the 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 camera facing the ceiling not the back like all those little those are all procedural things that went wrong Mm -hmm. in this case Mm -hmm. You know, to, to say that there was nothing says that everything that happened is okay. You know, when, when, you know, clearly it was not. So do you know about when that was? Um, maybe two or three months after. Okay. So around the same time? As, yes. Okay. He, it was fairly quickly after they did the press conference with the district attorney. It was fairly quickly, within a week maybe or two, that he said that. Okay. Yeah, I don't remember seeing that. I didn't watch it, but. It might have been the same day. Because I remember leaving here, going somewhere else, you know, to be with people and watching his, he was gonna, he was doing a press conference. It might have been the same day even. Right. So you have that first piece of the onion that day, really with the, the, the canine. And it's like, okay, while well, we're moving towards the, the civil. 
So we decided that we were going to start with the major players on the depositions. Um, so our first couple of depositions were Officer Eric O'Brien and Officer Colin, Colton Warnicky, the two that were here. It was crazy. Uh, Colton Warnicky, um, and we did see this in a lot of depositions, they can't remember, seem to recall what they learned in school, when they went to school, who was their teacher. Um, so there were a lot of questions that were never answered because they don't recall. And that seemed to be a statement that resonated through a lot of the officers that we talked to. And the scary part about that was some of the questions weren't necessarily directed to that night and to Jonathan, but daily procedural questions as a police officer. Right. And their response was, I don't recall. Okay. So that's a big concern. It is a big concern. Um, it's also a good testing of the waters. Mm -hmm. You know, it, 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 it lets you know something about them and, and what they do um, and how they do it. Uh, okay. I think what what we saw in a lot of the depositions was when the officers walked in, I think they were number one shocked that we were all in the room. Mm -hmm. And number two, that they walked in very staunch and, you know, like, I don't know if they felt this was going to be a piece of cake, but they seemed to have this air about them. Okay. But as the depositions continued, went on through the day, you saw their body language totally changed. And I think the person that, the two people that affected me the most were Officer O'Brien and Officer Warnicky because they were beat down. Um, and, it, and it was clearly obvious that they were struggling. Mm -hmm. So there were some facts that came out that we have been sharing with people. And Officer O'Brien was questioned on his employment to Green Bay, his application. Um, first, he was asked if he was ever in the services, the military services, and he stated yes. Mm -hmm. And he was asked, um, you know, I think, how long were you in there? And then he said it was a very short amount of time. And then he was asked, well, why didn't you, don't you normally have to serve a certain number of years or months or whatever? He informed us that he was less than honorably discharged from the Army. Okay. Um, without conditions. That was the term he used. Okay. So I don't know that we've actually found out what that meant because I know a lot of people in the service and everybody kind of looked at me like. That's an administrative discharge. Um, I mean, it could be, the reasons are plentiful. Uh, he could have gotten in trouble more than once for, it, it could be something as bad as, thievery and something as little 
as uh, being absent twice, okay? That can cause you to go through an administrative proceeding. That's literal black and white, but for the army to actually do the procedure and, you know, have him, uh, have him be discharged in a less than honorable manner. Um, I mean, he probably did, you know, did something, did something foolish. He told us it was for depression. Okay. That would have been a med, like it would have been a medical discharge, but it would not have been anything less than honorable. It's, I mean, from my understanding of, uh, of it. You know? So that's where that ended with that. Um, from there, it, he was asked if he was ever charged with any crimes. Um, he had explained he had a disorderly conduct charge, a misdemeanor, I believe, or ordinance violation, one of the two. Um, he also was asked about complaints on excessive force, and I think there were three or four of those. Um, and he had to explain all those situations. And then we came to his application to the Green Bay Police Department. And it was asked why he did not include his stay in the Army and why he did not include the disorderly charges on his job application for police. Um, okay. Let me just, I just want to go back there because I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm in, in my head, I'm writing down the different types of discharges. Um, in an administrative proceeding, there is an honorable discharge, a general discharge, and a, and, uh, bad conduct discharge and then another type of and then if you go to that's the administrative and then you have you know an actual court martial that's different because that's like you being found guilty of a crime okay you can get any of these but you can also get a dishonorable discharge yeah they call that the big chicken dinner like that's the bad conduct discharge that's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, it is. That's, that's interesting. There's, did, I mean, did you find, like, I'm sorry, was there anything else that came from, from that? Um, our attorney was trying to research that and we have not been successful so far. Okay. Yeah. Weren't they trying to subpoena some records or mm -hmm. something too about that? They knew it would be very difficult to get those records. Okay. All right. So we didn't. But on his employment application, he failed to mention. He that. failed to mention that. So he. So I mean, that's obvious. They they would treat him as if he had an honorable discharge. He didn't even tell him he, he was, was in the service. Oh, he didn't tell him he was in the service at all. Okay. No. And he didn't tell them that he had any charges. You know, whether it was ordinance, misdemeanor, or anything, he didn't include any of that on his application. 
And then when we asked him why you didn't include any of that stuff, he said there weren't enough lines on the paper. Okay. I mean, when someone is about to join, and again, I'm, I'm, one line of thinking for me is that the, the, my question to agree to the police department, what kind of background checks are you doing on people? Mm-hmm. Um, because when you join the service, you go through a, to a MEPS, you know, and, uh, you, you get a background check, you know, I mean, I, they, you get an FBI background check. Um, at a minimum, you know, I, I just think, I, I, I think if we were to ask the general population, um, do police officers in this country, do they get background investigations? I think people would presume that the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know what I mean? Like I, cause I think that's like standard hiring practices. You know right? what I mean? Like, like, so I've always had background checks wherever I've worked and I, I'm not authorized to carry a gun as part of my job. They do, and it did come out the process that it, they go through, but it was so all over the place. It was really hard to understand. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like he turned his application in in March. He didn't get hired till December or whenever he got hired. I mean, it took a long time for him to get hired. And then he had to go in front of boards. He had to go in front of this. You know, at some point... He eventually told someone in that process that he was in the armed forces and about the disorderly conduct. But that should have, in my opinion, and I've been in HR for 15 years, that should have happened before he, they sent him through this whole process. Right. So just the, the inconsistency of him as a person and the failure that he had to omit that, I mean, it just, it didn't sit well with any of us. Right. I wonder how it sits with the police department. They hired him. (laughs) Well, and they didn't fire him after it all came out. Yeah. You know. Right. Even then. Right. I mean, they, they, they have, is he employed now? Yes. Yes. He's been promoted since he's a sergeant. Okay. (laughs) Um, okay. So, okay. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much our reaction. But we found out in talking to other families that, you know, have been fighting the same battle that we, that that's a theme. The officers are what we would look at as being rewarded they get promoted. Right. So I I guess, you know, the other really thing thing that stood out to me is as we went through all these depositions, we asked about the sound of a beanbag shotgun versus a regular gun. Is there a difference? And all the officers, except for Officer O'Brien, said yes. 
And some of them were actually really specific about a gun and the different um, sounds. And they knew exactly the gun, the type of gun that Eric O'Brien used to kill Jonathan because they're that, they're such experts in their field of firearms. Well, through our, our interview or deposition with O'Brien, it came out he's a firearms instructor. Okay. <laughs> this is like bizarro world. Try sitting across the table from them and listening to it. Yeah. And I'm sorry, just to clarify one more time, like I, I had to. So administrative procedure, it's honorable, general, or other than honorable, which is probably what, you know, what he had. And then by court martial, it's honorable, bad conduct discharge or a dishonorable discharge, which is the worst level. But in any event, to get an other than honorable is a, is a pretty, it's, it's, it's a pretty hard thing to do. Okay. So that's, you know, typically you don't want to, and other than honorable, I can tell you when it being in the service and other than honorable is viewed by people who are still in the service as something that'll ruin your life. That you, you will have a tough time finding employment. Um, you know, not, you know, I mean, I, it's, it's good for people to be able to have a, you know, a second chance and everything, but certainly in a situation like this, um, it goes beyond it's not just a good look that like this is not, this is a dangerous person, uh, to have in a position of authority when life and death is in their hands, <laughs> you know, is the bottom, is the bottom line. Um, Okay, so it's okay. So he's been promoted. What about Warren Nikki? I don't know. I don't know either. I heard that some of the officers were promoted, but I don't know which ones. Hmm. I know for sure he was, though. I don't think Warren Nikki was promoted. I think he just made it through his training yeah. and he just. He's just a beat, a beat cop or whatever. Hmm. Okay, so the difference between. Okay, you were you were going. Somewhere with the difference between a regular oh, he was a shotgun, but he was a firearms instructor. So, um, one would imagine that there's a difference in what, you know, and what that sounds like, right? Definite difference. The yeah. way some officers explained it, yes. Okay. And you would have think with him being a firearms instructor that he would be able to tell that difference. He's also a recreational gun owner that he said he has what, five or six weapons that he has at his home. You know, so one of the things, you know, when he says, I thought he was shooting at the officers, that's the whole reason that he unloaded on Jonathan. Right. I, I, and I, what did he think he had? Did he did he think he had a, that he was hiding a shotgun? Um, anyway, you, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, I it's what did he, what did this officer believe he had? 
Um, He thinks, I think at one point we got into the conversation of if he believed that Jonathan had hidden a weapon on his person. Or they even in the media said that there had been a weapon already hidden in the vehicle from someone who was arrested before Jonathan that might have stashed it there and that Jonathan found it. There's a lot of different things that have been out there. And that was proven false because he was their first arrest that night. Right. And the procedure had taken place where they looked over and there was nothing found in the car prior to his arrest. Mm. You know, and I think with that, when Warren and Keish searched the vehicle before they went out, as a trainer, you would think that he would be standing next to Warnerke when he did that to make sure that he did everything right. But he admitted he only saw him check the vehicle from his peripheral vision. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it just, as we were talking about the guns and Jonathan possibly hiding a gun, um, the conversation almost got comical as far as his thoughts on where the gun Jonathan where Jonathan would have hid the gun and how big the gun was. He was, said it was probably a three inch barrel. And then when asked, well, where, where do you think it was? You know, Warnicky searched him, found nothing. Did they search the waistband? Yes. Nothing was found. Yes. He alluded to the fact that Jonathan had it in his body. Okay. Okay. We'll just leave it at, leave it at that. Okay. Um, other officers were questioned about that, and they kind of went, uh, I guess it's possible, but I really haven't heard about people doing that. Yeah. I mean, that, I, he's, that sounds like just reaching. Mm-hmm. You know, Almost just just reaching. I mean, just his overall credibility, you know, from him explaining he got into an argument with a clerk at a store. He had stepped in between the clerk and his fiance or girlfriend at the time and basically told the guy, if you don't stop, I'll stop you. You know, it's just everything that he's done or said to us you know, just leaves a really bad taste in your mouth about what kind of person he is. Mm-hmm. You know, and then to openly admit that he has depression. And anxiety. And anxiety. And, you know, I think all of us know depression and anxiety is not something that you have it one day and it's gone the next. Right. It stays with you for your entire life. Right. You just have to figure out how to control it. Right. The, and, and, you know, I, I, people suffer from a lot of different things, um, but there are certain ailments that um, individuals in different professions, if they are diagnosed with those things, they just don't get to practice those professions anymore. Sorry. You know, that, that's, that, it's just... That's just one of those things like you, you, you can't have, 
I mean, I, I there's a friend of mine who uh, during flight school was diagnosed with depress- depression. He, I mean, that was he never flew again. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, because the risk of, of if something goes wrong, uh, life could be lost. Um, so you know, he just he just was unable to continue. Uh, you know, following that that dream. Um, like I said earlier, with respect to police officers, I, I, I think there are a good number of police officers who have suffered through trauma and it's, and it's never been addressed. Um, I mean, the types of things that they see uh, and experience, for the most part, are not the best of humanity. All right. For the most part, during the during their day to day living of life, um, and I th- I think one of the things that has to happen moving you know moving forward is um, mental health needs to be addressed. The the I mean that's one thing actually I spoke with the Chief Schultz and Seymour about um, when we did the Eyes Open Seymour event. Um, I spent about a half an hour talking with him after, and he was talking about, he said, the worst case scenario is having a police officer who's been traumatized, who's who's then had a bad day, and you run into a citizen that's having an equally bad day. You know, he said as a a chief, like, he worries about that, like that, because that, I mean, it's the worst case scenario. You know, life could be lost all because of a perception, you know, because your your senses are being overloaded and, and, and things like that. And again, uh, this is not to get O'Brien off the hook, but it is to say that we need to do a better job choosing who these police officers are um, and in what capacity they operate facing citizens um, because I, I just to go back to something you said when the D, when the district attorney when they came in with their demeanor and things like that and you kind of knew what it was going to be um, and you were trying to describe the emotion of that it's heartbreak again um, because it's not you, you can't you can't get Jonathan back you know, the only thing that's left is a semblance of a type of justice. And even that was denied. And it was denied either because of incompetence or willful neglect. Um, I, I can understand how that... I, I, I mean, I wore, the, I wore the uniform. This I cry over things like this. Because that's certainly not what I thought I was serving when I put that uniform on. I thought I was serving something better. It, 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 each time something like this happens, it just, it, it, I mean, it rips me open. Um, and I know I'm not the only one feeling that way. Um, the whole country's feeling that way right now. 
Um, I, I think because of COVID, we didn't have the same, It's and I said this in another intro to a podcast or something, but we don't have the same distractions. You know, there was no basketball or golf or baseball or any of that on. Um, it, it's, it's just, and again, I'm talking about the, the incidents with George Floyd, the, per, the, the, the young man that was bird watching in, in, uh, in New York. Every day, you had to wake up and you weren't going anywhere. <laughs> and you'd be like, they didn't arrest these people yet. What's going on here? You know, and this, it's, it's disturbing. It's disturbing. I mean, we sit here and we see over and over again on the television, somebody was, had a knife, they jumped at the police, they lunged at the police, they lunged at somebody. We see over and over again, these people still alive. Yes. Yeah. I post those a lot on, on, on Facebook. People shooting at the police 40 times. Arrested peacefully, <laughs> you know, um, it's possible. Uh, you just have to have the right people doing that work. And that's, you know, had that those sort of techniques been used in Jonathan's case, we wouldn't be sitting here today. No, no, we wouldn't. You know, so, I mean, I don't want to go, there's so much to this story, but I think we've touched on a lot of the things that people um, you know, probably needed, wanted, need, needed need to, to hear. hear. Um, I think the last thing that I want to say is about the two officers that we had in depositions were asked the question, um, whether they felt that the situation basically could be different or would have turned out differently had based, I don't remember how Forrest asked that question, but one officer actually picked his head up and looked us straight in the eye and said, if they would have used the less lethal option, we wouldn't be sitting here at the table today. The other officer said, if they would have used the less lethal option, the worst case scenario would have been Jonathan would have went to the hospital with a few dog bites. Yeah. You know, and to have officers tell us that, look us straight in the face and tell us, and they were visibly upset. Yeah. I mean, there were some that were visibly upset. He was, he was face down on the floor. The dog was on him. You could see he had no weapon. It was over. It was over. You know, and 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 really, those, some of those officers were also traumatized <laughs> by seeing that. Um, I. It's just. It's a tragedy on so many levels, but the 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 betrayal is that immediately following. The actions were more towards protecting O'Brien than justice for Jonathan. Yeah. You know, and so 
let's talk about some of the things we have coming forward. Uh, you know, there's a march coming up. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, um, about two years ago, um, we were approached, our family was approached to go to the Indigenous People's March in D.C. And um, also to attend the Women's March, which is the day after. So um, three of us went out and it was, we carried signs, Justice for Jonathan. So we were a part of that and it was really empowering. And then um, when I came back here, I held on to that feeling that, because I felt that that was very healing, you know, for me. And to stand there and listen to all the stories, you know, they had very diverse speakers talking about different topics. And the amount of people that were there was just, it was overwhelming. It was a really, really good experience. And I remember coming away from that being like, wow, we need something like that here. Because you just, that energy you get from that. So um, I've always been kind of an activist in heart. So like I wanted to do you know, some things for Jonathan. And, and so I think in the last, how long have we been like really boots on the ground? <laughs> a couple months. <laughs> it feels like a lot longer than yeah. that. But, you know, when the since whole, Minnesota. since the whole George Floyd thing, mm -hmm. it really like brought us all together as a family. Let's do this. Or again, again, because again. I remember, I mean, the first Black Lives Matter event I went to was on the river mm -hmm. in the cold yeah. uh, here for yeah. for Jonathan. Actually. Yeah, that was organized by Black Lives United Green Bay. Mm -hmm. um, and they've been supporting us from the beginning. Um, and there was a lot of groups that came out of that. Um, I, I, I don't remember Ryan's group. It's FRSO, I think, is the acronym. But he's based out of Milwaukee. And they're all about um, community policing or trying to do some sort of different way of um, getting the community more involved and having a stake in what happens to their officers and having citizens a part of the hiring and the firing of officers and overseeing investigations and stuff for misconduct and all that stuff. So he has been an ally with us since the, since day one when they reached out to us. Um, and I'm trying to think. Um, some other groups, you know, have just been there kind of in the background too. So George Floyd obviously was huge because that got the country, the energy just was going there. Yeah, because once you see it, you you, yeah. you have no choice if you yeah. want to sleep at night. And so I think that was us then at that moment coming together as a family because we were all grieving our own different ways at the time, yeah. you know, and trying to do the best we could. You know, these guys were more so involved in the legal part of it. Whereas the rest of the family was trying to find outlets for their grieving and their healing. So we all just, that whole George Floyd thing just brought us, rejuvenated us, brought us all together. And we've been boots on the ground since then. So um, we got, right after that, we got approached from the folks that organized the racial justice march in June in Green Bay. And so I was a part of the organizing of that and our family, family story was highlighted there. Um, and then, you know, we just started going to things. Um, Sarah, we, they always think about us, mm -hmm. you know, and they try to get us involved in all these marches and rallies and stuff. So Sarah's gone to, you went to the one on Wapaka. 
We all went to, we also got invited to a Mother's March in Minneapolis. And I just want to say that that March in June, um, my whole family mm-hmm. were there. Yeah. And uh, again, it's just so the, it, it was a peaceful march. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I've not been to one that hasn't been. And the thing about the one in June is that there was only one cop there, and that was the chief. Yeah, and that was a, we didn't know he was going to be there, you know, because obviously he's a part of our lawsuit and stuff, but right. um, he's kept his distance because I think he knew we were going to be there. Yeah. And he was there and then gone. Yeah. So he wasn't there for the entire thing. Um, so, so, yeah, so they... The, that group, the Black Lives United, they organized their own crowd control people, and they yeah. called them peacekeepers. Yeah. And so they had their own people crowd doing crowd control and keeping the peace. And there was maybe one um, scare of somebody, maybe a, a possible counter protester that was there that mm-hmm. happened to be there, but the police took care of it right away. So they didn't have to worry about that. Whereas now things are popping up all over the place as far as counter protesters showing up. So it's it's more scary now. It's maybe not safe, as safe as it was when we were marching in June. Right. But um, so we've been trying. So we went to um, the mar- the mother's march. Jonathan's mother was able to come. We were all able to do some healing. There were over a hundred and eighty families there that had. Um, lost a loved one due to police brutality. Um, Say it again. Over 180 families that showed up and had lost a loved one due to police brutality. And that's not even everybody. There were plenty of people that weren't able to be there. And there was people from all over. Alaska, California, Georgia, Boston, New York. Right. So it wasn't just like a Midwest thing. This was a national. Event. Well, I think what you, as you, you said, when you went to the march, you know, you just, it was invigorating. Mm-hmm. And I think because we, one of the methods is <laughs> of control is that we, we have suffered alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and it's like now the number of people who have stories, mm-hmm. we know each we know the number of stories out there yeah it's unacceptable this is not a one-off oh no it's unacceptable and it was we heard i don't know how many 75 maybe of the families there was quite a few of the families i got to speak including us that at that um the day before the march in minneapolis and i mean when you hear jonathan's story you're like holy shit that's that's huge and then you hear the next story you're like holy shit that's huge too because it was so many it's just as devastating and just as traumatic but there was a different spin on it you know what i mean so it was so emotional it was so emotional me and danielle got up and spoke in minneapolis to share his story and i usually do really well and i was so caught off that day and i don't know if it's from hearing all those stories prior or just Man, these guys can understand me. So if I break down, they know why. Right. I don't have to play this strong. Fight. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So it was. It, and after I text my oldest, and I'm like, I freaking got upset. You know, what I, I was. It, <laughs> I was kind of taken aback by that because, you know, we've been able to hold a strong front for the most part with everybody. You know. It's usually, me. I'll tell you. <laughs> I'll tell you the one. I'll tell you the one that got me. 
the one that really ripped me up. Elijah McClain. That was the first time I cried on my daughter's shoulder. I could not control myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and they try, you know, to put, you know, you see posts on Facebook or on Twitter about, you know, uh, shooting, cop shootings, shootings, shootings. And it's like, well, George Floyd isn't even in that stat. He wasn't shot. He was choked. You know, Elijah McClain isn't in that stat. Like you're, you're, you're putting up something to counter and numbers that ought to be included in that stat aren't in there. You know, how many white people have the police choked out? How many? You know, like I, I, I'm... I'm not saying that it hasn't happened, that that number is zero, but in any event, they like putting up numbers, but they don't use the proper you know, statistical uh, comparison. Like they use a pure number and you know, they forget the fact that there are like four and a half times more white people than these, you know what I mean? Like it just, it, they don't take, yeah, it's dispropor- yeah, the disproportionality of it. But Elijah McClain was the one was the, I, I emotionally, yeah. I actually had to turn off like social media and the news for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, too many beautiful people, too many beautiful people, like people that mean like no harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and they're gone. That's it. You know, they, they are forever that age. As the people like O'Brien, um, I don't know if he has a family or not, but what would he do? <laughs> what would he do in reaction uh, to something like this happening to one of his family members, one of his children? I don't think he'd survive. You know. I don't think he would handle, he'd be able to handle it. Right. You know, so... But yeah, I there's a the solidarity feels I mean it's empowering in and of itself because you you're in a thing with all these other people. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can and you can feel like you can feel the vibe whatever vibe that is. But I think that really helped our family. I mean, I was really leery about doing any of these marches. Mm-hmm. Um but when I went to the one in June, I mean, I, I felt so much better, you know, because you do. You feel so alone. Well, it's like uh, it's therapeutic, mm-hmm. you know, and, and when you think about going to th- th- very few people, when they realize that they have a problem, actually, very few people actually want to go to therapy. Mm-hmm. Like I, I know for me, I go to therapy. It took me like 10 years and what it was was i my office was near the the veteran center in you know in green bay and i used to go to the bank a lot you know bringing deposits and whatever else to my bank and every time i would drive back i would pass by that veteran center and something in my head be like yo dog don't you think you should pull over and talk to somebody <laughs> that's what the voice sounds like in my head Very you know? yeah <laughs> and uh 
And one day I, I like, I just, it wasn't on my schedule. It wasn't, I, I just, I just drove in and unpacking those things. Cause that's the, the fear of, it's the fear of having to unpack those emotions again, you know? And, uh, but when you're in a safe environment and other people are sharing, it's like, a, I mean, it's, it's like group therapy, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, I think that's, that's really important. Um, and I think that's what makes what's going on now different than what I have seen uh, with my time being alive. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly in the past, when we as people of color, minorities in this country, have uh, tried to demand something or at least say, hey, acknowledge my existence, we had no one else with us. Um, there were some. Uh, very few. Um, a lot of the support was uh, monetary, um, and that's charity. And charity is great, but it's not the same as solidarity. Um, solidarity is you standing next to me, you know, and, and walking forward with me, and whatever is going to happen to me, you're saying it's okay if it happens to you too. Um, there have been a couple of marches that I've gone to that. Uh, the people of color were outnumbered by white people. Uh, that is crazy in this, like, it, it, just from a historical standpoint, like with respect to this country. That's what makes me feel like there's real momentum because the bottom line is we can, there's not much we can do as a minority in, in, in a democratic republic, and we're such a minority. There's not much we can do. We can say, "Hey, this is terrible," but it's got. But we need white allies to actually join with us, you know, and 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 and, ampl- and we amplify one another's voices. Well, it's gone even beyond that, you know. Um, most of the pictures I see going on the internet right now with protests is you're seeing a bunch of white people getting beat up, you know, and and I, I'm tell like. I don't think the power, the you know, the powers that be understand what that's doing. <laughs> um, it's not working the way they think it's it's working. These these are people. Once that happens to them, where they see the other side of Andy Griffith, um, that most of them had not seen, you know, growing up. You can't see the system another way. They're changed for the rest of their lives. You know, um, and not only it's it's not only the knowledge of it. These are people of action that they're messing with. Um, so I'm I'm. It really feels good to see all of this momentum and 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 everything moving forth. So the march is on the is on October twelfth. October twelfth is actually <laughs> Indigenous Peoples Day. Okay, right. So um, the family has all pulled together to plan a march for that day and um you know while jonathan's always on our minds and in our hearts um you know and a big part of everything we do there's a lot of other people indigenous families that are hurting as well mm-hmm. so you but know, there's a war on right now if people are not aware <laughs> You know, and, and Jonathan, if anybody knows Jonathan, and a lot of people do, he was all about family. 
all about his friends, all about a stranger who needed help. I mean, that's just the way he was. So for, I think, my own opinion, I don't know how the rest of the girls feel, but by what we're doing, reaching out to other Native families and communities that have been hurt by police brutality, have missing loved ones, human trafficking, um, that we're doing exactly what Jonathan would want us to do. Mm-hmm. And that's help others. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's, that's, I mean, that's the legacy. Yep. Mm-hmm. Forever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like what Danielle was saying, where we have allies, non-native allies that, you know, Ryan and, and um, Black Lives United and different ones that have come about. Even we were in Milwaukee last month and um, before the uh, March on D.C. And we had a young girl come up and she's like, are you the family Jonathan Toby? And we're like, yeah. And she goes, I'm going to D.C. Can I put his name on a banner? Yes, please do. Can you also put Dexter Baxter? You know, Jason Perot, the, you know, other indigenous uh, men, who, young men who have lost their lives to police brutality. So we're fortunate, you know, we're fortunate that people want to help carry his name and want to continue his story with us. You know, and, but we also got to come back and say, yeah, and go, thank you to our community and to our mm-hmm. loved ones here, because from day one, they've been carrying us, yeah. you know, our friends, our close friends, his friends. Our elected officials, the Oneida Business Committee, um, Oneida Police Department, you know, they've all been there. They've all supported us. How can we help you? And then it continues today. You know, we're real fortunate. We have people volunteering for artwork and, and, and different things. So we're really lucky in that sense that we have that community support, too. You're here with us, you know. Yeah, right. well, thank you for that. And and um, Tori Lowe has been helping us, too. He's for an activist out of Milwaukee. So, you know, we are working on continuing that story. We are working on people knowing what happened to him. You know, so it's it's um it's growing. We're not done. We're nowhere near done. But like she said, the legacy of Jonathan is to help others, and that's part of our healing too. Yeah. You know, that's a big part of our healing and our moving forward. And the march is our healing. Talking to you is healing. We all have one another. You know, we're really fortunate in that sense. Um, so it's 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 about that that carrying his name, carrying him forward the best way we can. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes when people are out there and they're they're hurt, their hearts broken because of police brutality, you know, some people react out of anger and rage and, and we understand that. But one of the things we've agreed on is we move forward out of love for Jonathan. Yeah. That's what we're carrying our love for him, you know, and just cause he's gone doesn't mean it stopped. Doesn't mean it didn't quit growing, you right. know? So that's one thing I always want to make sure that, that, and we always acknowledge that. We always say, Yonko, we always say thank you to all that support, to all those people who are out there sharing his story for us too. So I just wanted to make sure that was in part of tonight's conversation too. No, that's, that's, that's important because, um, I know for me, personally um some people think that it, it it adds too much to my already intense nature but um my my story uh is my family story 
Um, I, I don't know if you guys have seen the like the movie. It's it's a movie Amistad, but there's a part um, when Singbei, the character, he says, "I know my ancestors will come and help me because I am the only reason they've existed anyway." Like. Once you realize that about your own life, um, it's 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 not a burden, you know. I mean, it's a it's a flag of pride. Um, and during times when you're down, um, it's a source of inner inspiration. Um, and so I I think that's an important that's an important thing. And that daily you're thinking about Jonathan. But your and but it's not just in remembrance; uh, it's a call to action, mm-hmm. um, and that that makes everything worth it. Mm-hmm. You know, so I want to thank you guys. Oh, first, tell everybody how they can keep track of you know what's going on with uh, yeah. with things. So. <laughs> Uh, we have a couple of places that people can plug in. The main hub of all of our communication is the Justice for Jonathan Tubby Facebook page. Um, we try to put updates. Um, when this comes out, we'll be plugging this on that page. We do updates of all the events that we have scheduled. Jonathan's angel bursary is coming up. Um, so we have the indigenous, so we have, we're working on a healing dinner the night before the march. Um, we're also going to be doing the Indigenous Peoples March. Um, and also after that, uh, on the actual date of Jonathan's Angel Bursary, we're not going to hold an event, but it's kind of an online event where people are going to wear his shirt and just take pictures to show love for him on that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ask people to take us in those so we can share those on his, his page. We have t-shirt sales coming up. We have a t-shirt design contest that's been put out this past week because we're hoping to have people design the indigenous days the indigenous people's day t-shirt as well as a police brutality t-shirt um that we hope to sell at the march so we have a lot of things coming up after that i don't know because jonathan's birthday is in december right before christmas that's always a hard time so i think I personally would like to take time off from October from his angel anniversary to December because it's just a tough time of the year not to have him. Right. So and it's right now, you know, emotionally we're done for, you know, it's, it, it's exhausting. Yeah. It's exhausting. And, and not just the work we're doing and not just the mourning process we're in. It, it's seeing the state of the world. Mm-hmm. And it keeps happening, and it keeps happening, and that's it, a re-trigger. You know, it's right. a re-trigger every time. And um, whether you see the video or you hear the news report, whatever it is, it, it's a re-trigger. So um, I know all of us are very exhausted right now emotionally. So you know, if we 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 may take a break, you know, and and maybe participate in some of the marches. But I think for us, that's gonna kind of yeah, just to take care of one and ourselves and one another right. and our healthy. children and yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it is a hard time. The holidays are a hard time because his birthday's Christmas Eve. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. we, um, but not to 
not to think we're not working. We'll still be working yeah. on stuff, just not as as um as much as we are right now. Yeah, and I think we've learned a lot in this whole process from the court case to all the activist things that we are doing to the events that, you know, remember Jonathan, that I think one thing we've learned along the way is, I don't, it's too soon to say this, but I kind of feel like we're a veteran group in Wisconsin as far as like, we're progressively moving forward, but then also trying to mentor other families that maybe are not in the same place as us, but want to get there. Mm-hmm. You know, when we went to the march in DC, um, on, on DC in Milwaukee, we were able to reach out to two other indigenous families that had been impacted by police brutality, lost loved ones, and they were able to be there with us. Maybe not ready to tell their story, but physically able to be there, which said a lot because they didn't have that before. Right. So also trying to build solidarity within our indigenous communities. And the people, the indigenous people's march is so important because it's something that's going to separate separate us and make us unique and as far as like we support black lives matter but we also need our own platform because we're going through some of the same issues and i feel like indigenous people are invisible they've always been invisible in this country and so we also need to have a voice in this all everything that's going on because everything impacts us on this on that same level as well Mm-hmm. So we need to bring our communities together in solidarity. Yep. We need to get our stories out also. But also there needs to be an education and an understanding to our white allies. You know, if you're going to be a black ally with Black Lives Matter, come be an ally with us too. Right. You know, be an ally with the Hispanic community, with the Hmong community, because they're also going through similar things. Right. So we're hoping to build solidarity because I keep hearing... Black liberation is everyone's liberation. And I, to the bottom of my soul, want to believe that, but I don't know if that really is what that means. And it, it's, it's hard for us. Historically, it's hard for us to, to um, get, our, get our word out, get our stories out. You know, like, you know, there's people who don't even know we still exist. You know, we're in some textbook from third grade that had right. a, Maybe a chapter if we were lucky, but, and just like Danielle was saying, you know, we're ghosts on our own land and we're over here screaming and waving our arms like we're still here. We have issues we want to discuss. We need help, you know, and it's one of the other things we've talked about as a family too is, you know, you talk about generational trauma, but that goes hand in hand with mental health Mm -hmm. and we need to focus on those issues in all communities, not just indigenous communities, but all communities. Yeah. And that's another thing we've talked about, you know, beyond our work right now is eventually we'll want to start focusing on those things too. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is most definitely time for solidarity where everyone has an equal voice. Yeah. Um, so one thing we wanted to just mention too is that um, Jonathan's Facebook page um, puts out um you know, the flyers for the Indigenous Peoples March coming up, which we know there's not a lot of details on it right now as far as location and things like that, but we're working on trying to find the location, get approved and all of that. But we do have a cash app set up. So if people want to make donations, um, that's on our page in the info tab. And also we have, we do have a PayPal? Not a PayPal, I'm sorry. Oh, we have a GoFundMe. Okay. Um, we have one just for Jonathan for us to be able to do 
Like we just gave $200 to Black Lives United for school supply donation. We want to use that money to hold events and give back to the community, obviously. But we also have a GoFundMe specifically for the Indigenous Peoples March okay. so that we have, you know, money for permits, for supplies. You know, we're going to have to get a sound system, you know, all this other stuff all that we're going to need. All the logistics. Yeah, yes. all that stuff so, costs money. So it's so. Facebook.com slash Justice for Jonathan? Justice so. for Jonathan Tubby. Okay, Justice yeah. for Jonathan Tubby. Yeah. And it's J-O-N-A-T-H-O-N. Correct. T-U-B-B-Y. Correct. And one of the major fundraisers that we do right now is the t-shirt sale. Mm-hmm. And we have one coming up. It's the purple t-shirts that we're known for right now mm-hmm. that says, say his name. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one of our main ways of fundraising right now is the t-shirt. So we'll be announcing another sale coming up probably in the next week, a week and a half. We're just waiting for our order to come in. And then we'll be have we just pop up, do like a pop-up sale. So we'll be announcing that, too, if people want to buy face masks or T-shirts. Okay. I uh, thank you very much for uh, having me over. Um, I tried not to read too much about uh, the story because I didn't want to lead it, you know, lead you guys anywhere. Um, But just kind of go with, you know, with where with where you you know, wanted to, to take me with it. Um, everyone, please go to Facebook and uh, Justice for Jonathan Tubby um, and like, follow it, donate, get out there and help. Be on the lookout October 12th uh, in the Green Bay area um, for the march. Um, before we take off, I just... I. I, I was reading some history, and uh, my last words are going to be regarding uh, Crispus Attucks. Um, if you guys don't know, he was the first person killed during the Boston Massacre, which is considered the, the he's considered the first death uh, of the American Revolution. If this country is to continue, it must change. The soul of the country is being tested, and the judgment will be based, in my opinion, of its treatment of minorities and immigrants. Crispus Attucks was here at its birth, a martyr for a grand idea. John Adams, future second president of the United States, was defense attorney for one of the acquitted soldiers. He stated that Attucks was a stout mulatto fellow whose very looks were enough to terrify any person. Here we stand today, hundreds of years later, with no full measure of justice, but the same words describing human as beast and beastly prejudice emboldening an inhumanity. If we cannot find full justice for Crispus Attucks, first sacrifice of the American Revolution, born of black and indigenous blood, who will also be the country's damnation. Justice for Jonathan. Thank you. This is Amy Secor. I was Jonathan's school counselor when he was at Seymour. I have a couple memories of him. One is um, I remember when he was taking algebra and uh, math was not his favorite thing, but 
he was in a class with Mrs. Susky and he's getting a B plus and he was so proud of himself. I can literally see his smile in my mind right now. He was so excited. Um, the other memory that I have of Jonathan is just he and his buddy James used to come and see me at school years after um, school was done. And uh, I just remember one time uh, they came in and, and there was a new secretary and she didn't know them. And they just walked past everyone and walked right into my room. And James picked me up <laughs> and Jonathan just had this big, huge smile on his face. And everyone was alarmed, like, what is going on? Um, but it was great. 